This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Flat Out Farno, you're Laddie H, host of Flat Out Pride on your Free FM dial. If you're a Waikato local with an idea for your own show, Free FM would love to hear from you. Check out our website, freefm.org.nz, or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello, and welcome to the program. Whether you've been with us before, or whether you're tuning in for the first time. We're using as a basis for our discussion on this series of programs a text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, which is a commentary by the Tibetan master Namkar Pal on another mind training known as the Seven Points of Mind Training by Geshe Chikawa. It all gets a little complicated, but for the purposes of this particular program, you only need to know that our discussion comes out of an instruction in the seven points of mind training, which says we should train in the five powers, that is, the power of intention, the power of the white seed, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of acquaintance. But now, before we go any further, let's think about our motivation for joining the program today. And since our main topic is the development of bodhicitta, how about making that our motivation? May this program and my participating in it become the cause for my swift enlightenment so I can best help all other beings. May I especially help them to also attain enlightenment. How about something like that? But if you feel a bit overwhelmed by such a broad motivation, at least think that this program will be the cause of your own enlightenment. Thank you. Going back to Nam Kapal's commentary, we've talked about the power of intention and the power of the white seed, and lately we've been dis- addressing the power of remorse. This Nam Kapal explains as giving up such disturbing emotions as the misconception of the self, the self-centered attitude it gives rise to, and the inclination to neglect other- others by means of regret. The disturbing attitudes especially the mistaken way we grasp at an inherent and independent self and then cherish that self above everything else, are the underlying cause of all our problems over multitudes of lives. Putting me and my happiness before everything else leads us to neglect others in the sense that all others become secondary to this emperor, me. It does not necessarily mean that I don't give care or help to others, It means that even when I do give help or caring, I'm mainly thinking about myself and my benefit. Of course, it's very difficult to help others unconditionally. Research has shown that even when we think we are being unconditionally altruistic, we usually have some secret agenda we may not even know about. Not that that agenda is necessarily at fault, but we should at least know about it so we can see if it is faulty or not. An article titled The Selfish Reasons Behind Why We Give by Maya Salzowitz in Time magazine explains a little bit about this. Salzowitz writes, Feeling good about our actions, not guilt or pity, motivates giving, according to the latest research. Although seeing or hearing about suffering children makes most people uncomfortable, that distress is not what drives them to dig into their pockets and donate. 
The reasons people decide to be altruistic, it turns out, may be slightly more selfish. In the study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, researchers found that people who are more likely to give when they think it will make them feel better. They donate, for example, when they feel hope about putting smiles on those expectant and suffering faces. And that hope or similar feel-good sensations are driven by the brain's reward systems. Researchers and charities have long known that putting a specific face on an abstract problem opens hearts and wallets. Joseph Stalin once said that while one death is a tragedy, a million is merely a statistic. Studies have since found that quantifying the size of a disaster or particular need paradoxically lowers giving, while presenting a single story without explicit numbers is more likely to prompt a desire to help. But it wasn't clear whether this identifiable victim effect resulted from people's guilt over their own privilege and resources and a desire to share them, or from a sense of connection with the victim and an urge to feel good about making a difference. To find out, researchers led by Alexander Ganevsky, a graduate student in psychology at Stanford, imaged the brains of 22 young adults. In the scanner, they either saw a silhouette identified as an orphan and refugee in the Darfur region of Sudan, or a headshot of a young African child. Earlier, they were each given $15, in addition to the $15 hourly fee for participating in the experiment, which they were told they could either keep or donate to a partnership the researchers had with a Sudanese orphanage. Each image was presented along with a request for a specific donation, ranging from $1 to $12. As in prior studies, participants were far more likely to give if they saw a face than a blank silhouette, donating almost twice as much in photo trials than in the others. However, this decision was related strongly to their emotions. If they showed little activity in their nucleus accumbens, a, bra a brain region linked to every type of pleasurable experience, they were actually less likely to give. But if activity in this reward area spiked, they felt good and gave more. And the photos of the children were more likely to activate this reward center. Activity in the accumbens, in fact, completely accounted for the difference in giving seen between the silhouette-based requests and the photo-based ones. We are finding that the reason people give to identifiable victims is because of the emotional impact it has, and specifically, the more positive emotion, the more impact, says Ganevsky. Of course, not everyone was equally rewarded by the pictures of the children. People vary widely in their experience of positive emotions, and this is due in part to how engaged their nucleus accumbens may be. People with depression or addiction often experience changes in this region that contribute to pleasurelessness and lack of positive moods. In the study, 10% of people gave at every opportunity, and another 10% never gave at all, representing the extremes, while about 80% of the participants gave when the photos lifted their moods and activated their reward systems. While the findings point to the feel-good motivations behind giving, other research will have to address the question of why givers get that positive emotional boost. 
do people feel rewarded when they give because they think about the happiness of the recipient? Or do they feel good because they see themselves as generous and that self-esteem boost is mood-enhancing? The next step is to understand what are the differences, even along the spectrum of that middle 80%, but especially at the extreme ends, Ganevsky says. Such information could help charities tailor their messages to maximize their effectiveness. For now, he says, charities might want to gear their public materials and brochures to emphasize positive outcomes of charitable aid, which are more likely to activate the pleasure centers in the brain and help givers to feel good about their actions, rather than focusing on how needy the victims are. Well now, finding this information out for the sake of making charities richer doesn't seem a particularly altruistic action either, does it? Does Buddhism say that feeling good about giving is a bad thing? I don't think so. If it is the main or only reason for giving, we would probably have a problem. But knowing that giving boosts ourselves as well as providing help for others shouldn't prevent us from donating. If we are adept, we can enjoy the boost while still making altruism our primary motivation. For a real giver, whether getting the boost or not is very much a secondary concern. The primary concern is seeing the relief or joy in another's life. What if you made a major difference for the better in someone's life, but your actions were attributed to someone else who took all the credit? How would that make you feel and what would you do? Get all uptight and make sure that everyone in the vicinity knew it was actually your doing? Stay quiet but fume inwardly? Or move on with your life, recognizing that who got the credits didn't really matter so long as the donees got what they needed. It seems in business it is quite common for people to have a good idea, which they run by someone else, who they obviously trust, but that someone then presents the idea as their own. In her blog on womensuccesscoaching.com, Bonnie Marcus posed a theoretical situation in which a woman shared a fresh idea she'd had for a stale work project with a colleague. That colleague presented the idea as her own at a senior staff meeting. So, my question to all of you was what would you do? asks Bonnie Marcus. Would you let it pass? Would you confront her? And she then thanks the people who responded to her question for their time, honesty and sharing and writes, I think most of you would admit that you would be pretty angry and feel betrayed. Yet some of your responses indicated that you would let it go and not say anything. Nancy shared this. As far as the stolen idea goes, I would do nothing. It will eventually come out and you will be rewarded. If you scramble about who came up with the idea, you will just seem sort of, well, I don't know the right word. Also, your co-worker knows that it was you. Besides, the work is for the team, right? And Barbara offered this generous thought. When I find that when I get into a situation that seems to rob me of my triumph, the best thing to do is bless the person who stole the idea. Most likely, she didn't do it on purpose. We all can get great ideas. If I remain secure in my identity, then this situation won't rock my boat. Marcus continues, Some of you would not directly confront your colleague, 
but would instead choose to address it with senior management later or simply let the truth reveal itself. Chante shared that this exact situation did happen to her and this is what she did. I allowed her to get the credit, yet later on, while alone with my boss, I told him the truth, how I made the suggestion and she stole it. He found her actions amusing. He was fully aware of my character and work performance. He believed and accepted every word I spoke. I just communicated the facts. It all worked out in my favor. Originally, he thought what she did was fabulous, a great example of an employee going the extra mile. Afterwards, he found her not so great, which was his original opinion before this incident. Chante also added that she refrained from having lunch with her co-worker after that. Marcus continues, Margaret added this, It happened to me. Unfortunately, for my male colleague, he couldn't come up with a suitable proposal or implementation plan and was caught when he confessed it wasn't his idea or vision, and so ended with egg on his face. I volunteered to do the project myself, and no one lifted a finger, because they knew that was my area of specialization. I just did not belabor the point that I was the expert. Balaji had a similar situation several years ago. Fortunately, I was crazy enough to document the idea on email and share it with someone else as well, just to get feedback. Fortunately, that's what saved me. After the meeting, I approached the senior management and informed them of the blatant plagiarism by my colleague and took the emails as evidence. The director sent out a correction in the weekly email, acknowledging me for the idea, and the colleague was moved out to a different department with a note to the HR. If not for that email conversation with another colleague, I would probably would have still been cribbing. The, the lesson that this has taught me is to document official discussions of any kind on email. Marcus also lists some responses that she describes as showing a more assertive approach. Loretta shared this, she writes, I too am very creative by nature and someone who gets lots of ideas. I've more than once found myself in a situation where I've not gotten credit for a pivotal idea. I try really hard now to get my ideas in writing right away, like in an email to my supervisor, so I have a dated paper trail I can bring up when I claim an idea. I'm very vigilant about acknowledging other people's good ideas and also their input into my ideas, as, in truth, it is the synergy that I enjoy most. But I'm not shy about claiming ideas are mine when they are, and assisting that I be given credit for them when warranted. Jacqueline added this. My initial thought would be to let the colleague speak out about her idea, and then when she was done, stand up and say something like, Thank you, so-and-so, for that great synopsis. However, please allow me to elaborate on this idea which I presented to you yesterday. I had envisioned this and maybe even that, and so on hate the thought of someone else getting credit for my own creative ideas. Michelle sent in this response. I would have immediately chimed in, saying, yes, and when we were talking about this yesterday, claiming at least partial ownership, I suggested to Diane that we approach it in this manner. And that way, not in a she-stole-my-idea situation, which reflects poorly on both of you, you for whining and her for stealing, 
but instantly connects you to the idea and allows you to further lead the discussion, establishing a leadership position when she likely brings nothing else to the table. It's interesting to note that due to the nature of the blog, all the responses came from women. I wonder how a bunch of competitive men will react in this kind of situation. More blood might be shed. But including this blog in the program urges us to think how we will behave when caught up in a similar event. Would you be like Barbara, who replied, I find that when I get into a situation that seems to rob me of my triumph, the best thing to do is to bless the person who stole the idea. Most likely she didn't do it on purpose. We all can get great ideas. If I remain secure in my identity, then this situation won't rock my boat. Or would you be more assertive, like Michelle? I would have immediately chimed in, saying yes, and when we were talking about this yesterday, claiming at least partial ownership, I suggested to Diane that we approach it in this manner. That way, you're not in a she-stole-my-idea situation, which reflects poorly on both of you, you for whining and her for stealing, but instantly connects you to the idea and allows you to further lead the discussion, establishing a leadership position when she likely brings nothing else to the table. Can we say that one course of action, perhaps like Barbara's, is inherently better than another, like Michelle's? Of course, we can apply a formula, but formula are by nature a one-solution-fits-all kind of response, and given the various ways in which situations and people work out, perhaps we can be more creative in our thinking. So instead of holding one course of action as better than another, we might better examine each situation as it arises and apply the best solution that appears. So sometimes Michelle might be right and sometimes Barbara. It depends particularly on motivation. If the motivation is only to ease one's own discomfort at being betrayed and to make the other person suffer, it may well be best to act to defeat the self-cherishing thought, like Barbara. However, to help the offender realize the error of their ways and assist them to be more honest and compassionate in future, one may need to act more like Michelle. In any case, the question is whether we are primarily acting in the interest of others or ourselves. Maybe not being Buddhas, we cannot act purely out of altruism, but is the bulk of our motivation altruistic or selfish? This can guide our actions. Now at this point, we can return to Pema Chodron, who was driving the conversation at the end of our last program through an article titled, To Know Yourself is to Forget Yourself. If we find ourselves about to act out of self-centeredness and self-cherishing, like wanting to destroy the person who stole our idea, for instance, Pema Chodron says it's a good place to find our wisdom. But only as long as we are able to look deeply inside ourselves and deal with what we find there, rather than lash our negativity out into the environment or the other person. She says, The journey of awakening happens just at the place where we can't get comfortable. Opening to discomfort is the basis of transmuting our so-called negative feelings. We somehow want to get rid of our uncomfortable feelings, either by justifying them or by squelching them. But it turns out that this is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. According to the teachings of Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism, our wisdom and our confusion 
are so interwoven that it doesn't work to just throw things out. By trying to get rid of negativity, by trying to eradicate it, by putting it into a column labelled bad, we are throwing away our wisdom as well, because everything in us is creative energy, particularly our strong emotions. They are filled with life force. There's nothing wrong with negativity per se. The problem is that we never see it, we never honour it, we never look into its heart. We don't taste our negativity, smell it, get to know it. Instead, we're always trying to get rid of it by punching someone in the face, by slandering someone, by punishing ourselves, or by repressing our feelings. In between repression and acting out, however, there is something wise and profound and timeless. If we just try to get rid of negative feelings, we don't realize that those feelings are our wisdom. The transmutation comes from the willingness to hold our seat with the feeling, to let the words go, to let the justification go. We don't have to have resolution. We can live with a dissonant note. We don't have to play the next key to end the tune. She says that if we can honor those parts of us we see as negative, we may discover a tremendous joy. She states, Unconditional joy comes about through some kind of intelligence in which we allow ourselves to see clearly what we do with great honesty, combined with a tremendous kindness and gentleness. This combination of honesty or clear seeing and kindness is the essence of Maitri, unconditional friendship with ourselves. This is a process of continually stepping into unknown territory. You become willing to step into the unknown territory of your own being. Then you realize that this particular adventure is not only taking you into your own being, it's also taking you out into the whole universe. You can only go into the unknown when you've made friends with yourself. You can only step into those areas out there by beginning to explore and have curiosity about this unknown in here, in yourself. She goes on to say that knowing ourselves might appear very egocentric, but actually it is the opposite. Getting to truly know ourselves dissolves the barriers we put up between ourselves and others. She says, Somehow all of these walls, these ways of feeling separate from everything else and everyone else, are made up of opinions. They're made up of dogma. They're made up of prejudice. These walls come from our fear of knowing parts of ourselves. And then she goes on, There's a Tibetan teaching that is often translated as self-cherishing is the root of all suffering. It can be hard for a Western person to hear the term self-cherishing without misunderstanding what is being said. I would guess that 85% of us Westerners would interpret it as telling us that we shouldn't care for ourselves, that there's something anti-wakeful about respecting ourselves. But that isn't what it really means. What it is talking about is fixating. Self-cherishing refers to how we try to protect ourselves by fixating, how we put up walls so that we won't have to feel discomfort or lack of resolution. That notion of self-cherishing refers to the erroneous belief that there could only be comfort and no discomfort, or the belief that there could be only happiness and no sadness, or the belief that there could be just good and no bad. But what the Buddhist teachings point out is that we could take a much bigger perspective 
one that is beyond good and evil. Classifications of good and bad come from lack of maitri. We say that something is good if it makes us feel secure and is bad if it makes us feel insecure. That way, we get into hating people who make us feel insecure and hating all kinds of religions or nationalities that make us feel insecure. And we like those who give us ground under our feet. When we are so involved with trying to protect ourselves, we are unable to see the pain in another person's face. Self-cherishing is ego-fixating and grasping. It ties our hearts, our shoulders, our head, our stomach into knots. We can't open. Everything is in a knot. When we begin to open, we can see others and we can be there for them. But to the degree that we haven't worked with our own fear, we are going to shut down when others trigger our fear. So, to know yourself is to forget yourself. That is to say that when we make friends with ourselves, we no longer have to be so self-involved. It's a curious twist. Making friends with ourselves is a way of not being so self-involved anymore. Then she quotes Dogen Zenji, who says, To forget yourself is to become enlightened by all things. When we are not so self-involved, we begin to realize that the world is speaking to us all of the time. Every plant, every tree, every animal, every person, every car, every aeroplane is speaking to us, teaching us, awakening us. It's a wonderful world, but we often miss it. It's as if we see the previews of coming attractions and never get to the main feature. When we feel resentful or judgmental, it hurts us and it hurts others. But if we look into it, we might see that behind the resentment there is fear, and behind the fear there is a tremendous softness. There's a very big heart and a huge mind, a very awake, basic state of being. To experience this, we begin to make a journey, the journey of unconditional friendliness towards the self that we already are. And that's Pema Children. Now let's end the program with a quote from Mark Less's book, Know Yourself, Forget Yourself. He says, To thrive in our lives and be happy and effective, we must be in balance. On a very real level, our personal life, work life and spiritual life are not at all separate. But how do we achieve balance? More importantly, how do we keep our balance when life seems designed to knock us, knock us off balance? One answer is to become as adept as a tightrope walker. A tightrope walker can feel when he or she slips out of balance and adjust, stepping more quickly or not at all, bending a little to the left, now to the right. As an audience, we see the acrobat losing balance and we know that the person will fall if it goes uncorrected. Indeed, that's the entertainment. We marvel at how the tightrope walker shifts in and out of balance constantly and continually, moving back and forth across the wire while performing tricks that only increase the difficulty. How, we wonder, does the person do it? Acrobats achieve this skill through practice by understanding and honing their kinetic sense of inner balance. They come to know their internal gyroscope so well that they can feel every wobble and instinctively correct it. They also learn to balance their inner and outer awareness while never losing focus on the present moment. He goes on to say, This isn't easy. In order to find balance, you must be open and responsive to imbalance. This is the paradox of the tightrope walker. 
and I will leave you to ponder that over the next week for our time is up. Thank you for joining the program today and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Have a joyful and paradoxical week. Goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.